Welcome to the second season of Little Revolutions. For those of you who haven't been with us on this journey, this is a podcast about how we live in a world that isn't built for all of us. We talk about the problems that are so much bigger than any one of us, problems that are systemic, and problems that impact the ways in which we live, we love, we work, and we get through the everyday. We talk to people who have been working through these problems in a very public space, and we learn from them, and we learn from their journeys, the little revolutions that have helped them navigate and overcome and work through being a human in this very messy world. On today's episode, I chatted with activist Sharon Gofka, who you might recognize from her time on Love Island. Sharon and I chatted about her quote-unquote untraditional path into activism. But what even is a traditional path when you're the first or one of the only people with your identities in these spaces? We talked about how that comes with its own litany of challenges and opportunities when the world doesn't quite understand you or know what to make of you, and so they wrongly define you sometimes. She told me about how people thought she was angry growing up, but really she was just misunderstood, and how as she's become this powerful voice for women and girls' rights in the UK, she's not just carving a new path, but she's creating new definitions for what a woman like her can be, a woman like all of us can be, and along the way, holding open the door for the next generation behind her. Thank you so much for being here. No worries, my pleasure. I've been really excited to, um, to do this. So to get us started, we don't like to define people. We let people define themselves and introduce themselves. So how do you want to be introduced? I'm... Sharon Gafka, I am a Violence Against Women and Girls activist. Thank you for coming here um, and talking to us. We're big fans. Um, Thank you. I'm big fans of you guys as well. So. It's a marriage of fans. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and a, a big part of why I wanted to talk to you is because so much of the work you do is about creating space for women and girls, right? And you're so outspoken or, or just spoken, um, honestly spoken, about how the world doesn't feel safe for women and girls. And it's everywhere, right? It's like very difficult to feel safe if you're a woman in the world, whether you're online, whether you're out in the streets, whether you're at a bar, it just, it feels like it's endemic. And it's interesting because your work touches on all of it. And I wanted to talk to you and get into this conversation with how you navigate it yourself as a woman. So not just in your activism, but also as a person in the world, which is a very big question to start with. But I was wondering, how did you get started with your activism? Like, what was your turning point where you were like, you know what? This is, this is something I need to say something about. Yeah, I think for people that don't necessarily know my heritage or my family makeup, so I am a child to first and second generation immigrants. So my dad is half Polish, my mum's Indonesian. And if anyone knows anything about the history of those countries, women, but I mean, even still in those countries, women don't really get treated equally or like are viewed as the same level as men. So I've kind of grown up like being really interested in why that is and reading about it and also why my mum was always like to me uh, in private conversations like, you know, you need to pursue your dreams, you need to do what makes you happy. And I was always like, oh, maybe she's been a supportive mum, but I knew that the conversations were slightly different between my brother and I. Mm-hmm. Um, and I spent a lot of time back home in my childhood, back home in Indonesia, and, like witnessing poverty and how politics fails those people. So I always knew that I wanted to be involved in something bigger than myself. And when I was, I think, 15, picking my GCSE options, or 14 even, I said to my teacher, I want to be an MP. Mm-hmm. Like That's the long-term goal, and it still is now. So at yeah, 18, I joined the civil service, and like I felt it was good at times when you know that there are things you are doing to help people, but you are restricted by the government of the day, all of the like red tape and things like that. So 
yeah, I think I had a moment where I finished working on like Brexit and COVID and was like, I need a break. Jokingly applied for Love Island, got onto Love Island, well, off was offered it. And I thought that it'd be really stupid for me to not take that opportunity because I know the platform it gives you afterwards. And um, I think a couple of months after I left the show, it was like fresh as season all over again. And a lot of the girls, I live in a jurisdiction that's policed with lots of local univers like big universities like Oxford Brooks um Reading all of that so a lot of girls were saying to me you know they'd experienced spiking I was reading about it in the news I was trying to support grassroots organizations and com campaigners and because I'd ha it's happened to me and I thought well you know I can't support them if I'm not going to be brave enough to stand up for them knowing the the fact that that moment in time everyone was so invested in what I was doing so I think I just turned around to my publicist and said I want to say that it's happened to me publicly how can I do it and what's the best way to do it I ended up writing a piece for Grazia magazine mm -hmm. and it just blew up from there all of a sudden like everyone was all of these young women were coming to me with stories and I was like I would be doing them a disservice to not do anything with it like 1500 people from like emergency services to victims or survivors and the the policy experience I've had of working in government I knew how to do something with it yeah. so I think that I kind of just it was like a long life journey to get in where I am now and it sounds like you you're always clear about the impact side the the part that for most people me included and I have this platform and it's still scary is the speaking out, right? The the bravery, the vulnerability it takes. And I'm curious, in those conversations with your mom growing up, was she also telling you, like, speak your truth? Was that something you were seeing modeled around you? Were these conversations you were having with your friends? Because that often feels like the first step of just talking to someone else in the room and realizing you're not the only one. Yeah. And was that something that was happening with you? I think with my mom, she would tell me lots of things that happened. Like, for example, what it's like to experience period poverty. And... I think I was like internalizing that and learning from it. And I think it made me angry. Like I was angry that people didn't have what I consider basic human rights. Yeah. And growing up in a school, I grew up in an area that's quite affluent. Um, you can tell by my accent. So um, people didn't necessarily have the same life experience or the same exposure to what I was exposed to. And I think that I was like getting angry out outwardly and I didn't have anyone to like share those experiences with because um, it's a predominantly white area. Um, and I remember actually the friendship group I grew up with, all of the boys would always be like, oh, Sharon's such an angry woman, like always angry. No boys are ever going to fancy Sharon because she's just, and I had every right to be angry. And it's not until I got to this point now as to understanding why I'm angry. Yeah. And I think, I always wonder if those people look at my social media now and go, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> Everything makes sense, but I think, you know, I didn't, a lot of people just assumed that I was always angry, but I think it was just that I was misunderstood and had no way of expressing what I was feeling. I love that reframing of not anger, but being misunderstood or yeah. like it was a response to the world, it was a very like valid response to the world around you. Do, do you feel comfortable with the label of anger? I know I bristle a lot against it where I'm like, of course you'd count, count the brown woman angry, right? Like that's yeah. just the way the world is. And I hate being called angry, but you seem to own it with such comfort. And I'm like, is that something you are comfortable with? I think I can understand why people are uncomfortable with the label, but I think I've just learned to embrace the labels that people give me. And, you know, if I label myself as it, you can't use it as a power against me. Like if someone says to me that you're angry, I'm like, yeah, I have every right to be angry. Look at what's happening around you. Yeah. So I think that I, it did take me a long time to be okay with it. 
but I think now that I've just learned, I've learned to take things that used to be painful to me and turn them into something that's powerful. And I think that's what I try to convey on social media, which is so hard to do. Especially because people take one piece of something you've posted and completely twist it and turn it and turn it into something entirely different and you have no ownership over it. And you obviously, you have a big following. Um, and I imagine like if my DMs, which are much smaller world, I, like I get a lot of the rage, the, the projection from people, you're probably dealing with it as well. And I feel like anyone who is a woman online is dealing with some version of it, um, of like people misunderstanding you in a, in a much more global scale. How do you deal with that now? I think it's really, really tough to like, I, I know and I've experienced that women disproportionately get the worst end of the stick when it comes to being online. And it's always typically men that turn around to me and say, you just need to learn to moderate your own content. And it's, like, it's not about moderating because it's my page. If you don't like what I post, go, go away. away. <laughs> um, I think when I first started this journey, it really used to eat me up inside that I couldn't control what people thought of me. And I used to, it used to actually scare me to post because I was like so afraid of people misunderstanding what I think. Now I've got to the point where I can't, I'm wasting my energy on caring about, you know, people want to misinterpret me. They're going to do it whether I think about it or not. So I'm wasting energy on a group of people that will never want to listen to what I have to say. Um, so I should be putting that attention and energy onto people that do care about what I have to say and do find comfort in what I am doing. So I think it's taken a long time to kind of shy away from that. And as well, I think Selena Gomez said something about, you know, having a following on social media comes with massive responsibility. And I feel that responsibility a lot. And because I am one of very few campaigners that stem from a show like Love Island, people expect me to be able to fix and do everything all of the time. And I think that's one thing I'm still learning to deal with now. When something happens in the world, like I'm one person, right? My social media may look like there are multiple people dealing with it. It's just me. And I, f I find it really hard when people are like, well, what are you doing about this? Or what are you doing about that? As opposed to holding, so for example, men's mental health. Yeah. It's not that I don't care about it. It's just that I have no experience, firsthand experience of dealing with it. So why are we making me accountable for everything in the world, except, apart from and la less of holding men accountable for not doing their equal share yeah. to try and make the world better? They have the same platform as me. I'm only doing as much as I can. It, it's also impossible for anyone to have something to say about everything, right? Like, you're one person. Yeah. You're not, like, the president of the world. I mean, I've got... be great, but <laughs> you're not. I've got... An, I'm, I'm one of those people that I, I do have an opinion and something to say on yeah. everything. And my dad always makes jokes that if there was a PhD in being opinionated, I would be, like, top. But yeah. I, just, I just don't have the time or capacity to be able to fix and do everything as much as I want to. And it, it doesn't mean that I don't care or I care less. It just means that... I'm putting my time into something that I think is will look genuine and is genuine because I've experienced it myself. And you've, you've mentioned that your path into um, the kind of platform you have and the activism you're doing is atypical, right? Like mm -hmm. going from Love Island into this or not even going from Love Island into this because you were already working in these spaces, but using the platform that Love Island gave you. And I'm curious about like how you were thinking about it when you applied for Love Island. Was it even a thought in your mind or was it just like, I'm, I'm doing this wild thing, I'm just sending in this application? So, do you know what actually really made me laugh? When I left the show, you get, you get to see all the like press articles about you. And one of the articles was about how people, like my colleagues, 
didn't know that I'd applied or like, you know, found it really disrespectful that I did it. And I was like, mm, well, it's funny because my colleagues were actually the ones that encouraged me to do it because I'd, ne- I'd actually never really watched the show beforehand. I've seen episodes here, like it's massive part Everyone of Everyone has seen episodes, yeah. Yeah, so I've seen bits here and there, but I was never a massive fan yeah. of the show. But my colleagues were always like, no, we think you'd be great. You know, you could do something really big yeah. with this and the world needs somebody like that. And I was like, look, just to shut you guys up, I will send the application but it will never happen. And then like we found it, I found it really amusing every single step that I got through, that it was a little bit closer. And like I knew friends that have been through the process before and got to the last bit and it never happened. And I thought that's what's going to happen to me because it went really quiet for a period. And then I got a phone call and I was like, oh, okay, like three weeks I've got to, like I got to fly out. And I sat there and I had a massive conversation with my parents. My dad was really angry because he was like, you're throwing away a really good career for this. Um, but, you know, I, I've seen people get given massive platforms and, you know, can I, re- am I, can I really do what I wanted to do long term by being a civil servant and being restricted by the red tape that comes with being a civil servant? Like Michelle Obama always says that she doesn't want to be president of the United States because she can do more outside of being outside of the White House. And that's what I just took from that whole experience. And obviously, not obviously, but reality is that like, there aren't a lot of Asian women who have been in spaces like this. And again, my world is very different from yours in some sense, although we both, I think, care about the same issues and get to them from different spaces. But I know I feel a lot of like the burden of, well, I have a seat at the table, so I need to make sure I'm representing or like I'm holding space for all the other people who don't have a seat at the table. And for you, where did you did you deal with that? Like internally like were you struggling with that was it something you talked to your family or friends about like how were you navigating that because it's so much yeah I think internally it was part it was probably subconsciously part of the decision as to why I did it because I knew that like every time I turned the tv on there are very few Asian women in any form of media and I knew that actually getting into the position I was in in the civil service was very atypical of Asian women anyway so, you know, I'd had, I learned to have to force myself into these situations and for like, you know, if someone wasn't going to give me a seat, I was going to bring my own. And I thought that, you know, maybe this was another avenue of doing that. And I think it didn't actually, I didn't realize that maybe I'd whitewash the version of myself that was in Love Island. Like if you compare the appearance I have now to the appearance I had then, mm-hmm. like I tried so hard to be accepted by my peers around me by whitewashing like my personality my appearance and it wasn't until I came out and like I started to get more Asian women following me that they were like oh you know they were glad to see the representation but then also people not knowing that I was Asian like it was one of the most Google questions about me and I found that really heartbreaking because it's a massive part of my identity and it's you know something that I'm I always talk about given the opportunity to talk about it so I think it was part of like my own awakening as to like what I was doing with myself. Was it something you were like thinking about and working through? Like I know for me, it's been a journey of like through my 20s and now into my 30s. I did a version of the same thing of like, it's easier to assimilate, air quoting that, right? Like if if you look and act like the people around you and then like, okay, I want to take up a little bit of space and like take up a little bit more space and a little bit more space and actually, you know what, fuck it, I want to be myself. And there's a moment, there's a turning point generally where we all are just like, okay, I'm, I'm ready to just be myself and be in the room. And I'm curious if there were like people around you you were having this conversation with or people you were turning to, like how were you navigating it basically for someone who's listening and perhaps is earlier on in their own journey? Oh, 
I don't know what I don't know what the turning point was. I think actually maybe it was when I wasn't, even though I was doing all of these things and I still wasn't being accepted, that I thought, fuck it, if you're not going to accept the version of me that I'm forcing myself into, then I might as well not be accepted for being the real version of me. Mm. And I think that's what it was. I think it was the constant like rejection, the constant door in my face of like people that I was trying to please. And like I wouldn't and realistically that sooner you realise that you will never please them, the better it is for yourself. And I think that I felt so much better about myself and my mental and emotional state about myself or the way I viewed myself was so much better when I realised that I was doing everyone around me and myself a disservice by trying to fit into their their box and their way of looking at things. Do you feel like the you, you come up against that still at all or do you feel like you're at a point now where you're very comfortable with people just not like people being racist jerks basically or people being misogynistic not not that we should be comfortable with it where I find for myself at least like I think I'm through it right like I've reached a point where I I am who I am I I will show up as I am and then I'm in a room with all white people and someone will make a racist joke and I will like turn into my 16 year old self and be like I don't know what to say now or like do I take up the space or not I think it depends on the situation I think in a professional setting I've got to the point now where I will say something because I know that like I might not take it personally or like I'll just sweep over it, but there will be somebody else in the room that doesn't, or there'll be somebody that looks up to me to hold them, to hold that space for them. And then I'm not calling it out. So I think I just feel responsible for other people that are trying to like navigate a similar path to what I've done. And that's why I call it out. And I've learned that I make other people uncomfortable by being so vocal about how I feel and that means I'm doing the right thing. Like if people are triggered and feel the need to send me hate on social media or feel the need to say certain things about me, it's because I make them feel uncomfortable and there's a reason for that. And I take comfort in that because it means I'm doing the right thing. We had Mandu Reed on this podcast, um, the leader of the Women's Equality Party, and she said a version of this, which I like really hold on to, where the backlash means that you're being heard. Yeah. Right. And it's there's so much power in that in that reframing of like people wouldn't respond to you if like you wouldn't get the backlash if they weren't listening to you and it wasn't making them uncomfortable and our job is to make them a little bit uncomfortable so it's okay yeah that and you know I love Mandu and her work so I completely hold on to that and resonate with that as well a lot of people who are going to watch this and listen to this are younger women like women in their 20s probably the same types of people who also follow you and I'm curious about if you were giving advice to like a younger sister a younger sibling um, a cousin like what would you tell them when they're getting shouted at by the dudes who think they have something to say and they're just trying to fit women into tiny boxes. I think that I would always tell, and actually my brother was on the receiving end of abuse because it's easier to get to him than it is to me. Mm. So when I spoke to him about it, I always said that, you know, those people are angry, not at you and not at me. And they don't hate me, they hate themselves. Mm. And they have, no one is listening. And I actually feel sorry for them because nobody's listening to them and they're having their own struggles and they don't have a space to talk about it. Mm. So they're internalizing it and then projecting it on you. So actually it's not, it's not anything about yourself. It's a project, it's a representation of them. And you have to remember that that I actually feel sorry for them. Mm. And also I feel sorry for them. They think their opinion is so important that they feel the need to tell me if it's negative. Like I know that I'm never going to please everyone. But, you know, your opinion of what I'm wearing and what I look like is not that important to me. So, yeah. How did you get to this place? Like, I imagine it took some time to get to the the state of, like, zen that you're at with all of this. Was there, were there things that you learned how to do along the way where you're like, okay, you know what, this is a best practice. Like, someone we had on said that they, an activist said that they got off social on weekends because it was 
it was like a clear line of like, I need to just start doing this and it'll help me get to the point of like, okay, I'll be okay. Um, or I need to, you know, take a break at this point when I get this kind of paid and hand my socials accounts accounts to my friend and let them moderate things. And I'm curious about what it was like for you to get to this place where they can say what they want to say and it's them, not you. I think actually when I, I, I never like referring back to Love Island because I don't think it's the only thing that, about, that is about me. But I think when I first left the show and because of the COVID restrictions, I had five days in complete quarantine in my house and I live on my own. So I think for, for those five days, I was looking for anything and everything that was written about me. Yeah. And I think like that was probably the darkest point in my life yeah. because I was like internalizing and taking everyone's opinions as gospel and like it, as if it was the only thing that mattered. And I think I learned that now ignorance is a little bit blissful. I don't go looking for things about me. You know, if they get sent to me, they get sent to me, but I don't look for things, um, which I think is one thing that's really important. Yeah. And that's something I would always say to people. Yeah. If you look for something, you'll find it. And I always say that actually there was one particular moment not long after the quarantine finished where one of the trolls, I don't know if it was brave or stupid, that had his name and his photos attached to the profile he sent me, um, I realised also lives not very far away from me. So I saw him in a park playing with his young daughter. And I'm a confrontational person, right? I don't shy away from saying what I mean, it's quite evident. From, yeah. But I just asked him if he had anything he wanted to say to me. And he looked at me and I was like, I know exactly who you are and what you've said to me. And I asked him if he wanted to say it to my face. He just looked at his child, picked his child up. and I wasn't aggressive, yeah. but like I just said, that, you know, if you really believe in what you've said to me, then you would say it to my face. And the fact is that he couldn't. He was bigger than me, older than me. If he couldn't say it to my face, then he didn't really believe it. And like, there is nothing I would say, to, like, like nothing I would say online or post about online that I wouldn't say to somebody's face. I mean, you also just made yourself a person to him, right? You're it, the trolling. You were just an idea, or I, I imagine, um, and you made yourself a human. Yeah. And you were a human. He had to deal with in that moment in front of his very human child as well. Yeah, I think like people fail, like think they see somebody on TV or see somebody on social media and think of them as a character. And like that, I mean, I was probably five times his daughter's age, but I'm still somebody's daughter. Yeah. I mean, it's bad to think of it that way because you are just an individual human yeah. being, but I am somebody's daughter. And imagine how, if somebody had sent to his daughter what he'd sent to me, he'd be absolutely fuming. So why would he do the same thing to somebody else's child? Yeah. I, I tend to hate the like, everyone is somebody's daughter and like yeah. the whole like daughter, sister thing. But if it works, it works, right? And it's a starting point, at least a way into the conversation. But it's interesting because you took something that was happening online, took it into like into real life, online is real life, but like you took it into a physical space. And for most of us, that's a terrifying prospect because you don't know how violent or how dangerous the other person can be. And this is something I wanted to talk to you about and something we talk a lot about is the world doesn't feel safe for women for the most part. And then there's like so much bravery and just in like going out every day into the world sometimes and also using your voice and I'm curious about how you navigate that where it takes a lot of courage to to keep speaking up right when it doesn't feel safe to be a woman in the world and when these trolls and these haters and they exist around you they live in your neighborhood and also like women walking home at night is not a safe thing right women going to a bar is not a safe like it's it's everywhere and like how do you feel safe in the world or how do you navigate that overwhelming sense of like well, it's all just really shit. Yeah, I think actually 
because of the trialing I get online, I find it very hard to differentiate outside and online and like mm. at home. So leaving the, I don't think about leaving the front, like leaving the front door anymore. I don't think about like, oh, is it safe on the other side? Because it's not safe on the inside. Yeah. So I think that I just, I don't actually think about the difference between the two. Cause to me, there is none. And also, you know, no, unfortunately, when we see all these stories of women being killed, it's a hard thing to say, but it's, you know, if it's going to happen, it's, it's going to happen. And I can stop living my life and letting potential perpetrators win, or I can put myself out there for another person. And I think, unfortunately, this world, even though we say, you know, it's money that makes the world go round, it is also kindness that makes society what it is, because... Mm -hmm. If if people like me didn't do what we do, like how, how worse, how much worse is the world going to look than it already does at this current moment in time? And you know there are plenty of women that came before me, and there will be plenty of women that come after me that will also have to do the same thing. Yeah. But if it wasn't for their sacrifices, then you know we wouldn't have things like the vote, for example. So I always think about it that way. Like there are women that were before me that made massive sacrifices so that I could have what we consider normal now. Yeah. that were considered luxuries back then it and how do you like take care of yourself in doing this work because it takes a lot from you right it demands a lot emotionally from you as well where you're being present and kindness can be the default but also like you're being present to just like the horrors of the world and everything that is broken and bad and how are you sustaining yourself yeah I think it's it's one of those things where a lot of people just, like people that don't necessarily understand what I do they'd be like oh just don't watch the news because you know that's that's why people have such bad mental health and it might be a cause of it but I, I physically cannot stop watching the news because it's part of my what job do, and yeah. my what I do and how I like live um but I think that you know I'm very fortunate to have a very supportive network and I think that it, that's the reason why I feel powerful and strong enough and enabled to do what I do. I'm, I have access to a therapist. I see her once a fortnight, sometimes more if I need to. I also have very good friends. They're all women, women of colour that also share my own experiences. So I don't feel like I'm being gaslit or like it's weird for me to talk about how I'm feeling. And they're, you know, always there and around. And also like, I, I'm very fortunate I have a dog. She, there's no, I mean, I say there's no judgment from her. She gives very big side eyes. And I have also seen a research piece where apparently female dogs are more judgmental than male dogs. I don't know how true that is, but maybe, maybe it is with her. But um, no, I think that like, it's nice to have like a compa like a companion that yeah. there is no judgment. Just they like, don't need anything from yeah. you. And it's like unconditional. And I think that all of the relationships are in my inner circle like that. But I also take time away from the phone screen. Yeah. Do not disturb comes on at a certain time every night. Mm -hmm. So I actually have to go looking for things, which I don't like doing. I also like reading, I've got loads of books in my house. And I do think journaling is also something that's really important to me. And when I was having CBT therapy, that she um my therapist taught me a thing about even even if the day is really, really bad, write down three things from that day that you are grateful for, and then it kind of training your brain to only focus on the positive things about the negative things so even if I've had the worst day possible and like the thing I put down is it didn't rain today like you know that's just yeah. yeah I really really have to think about positive things instead of yeah all the bad things that have happened that day and what gives you hope so there's like the there's the baseline of like sustenance right yeah and then in this kind of work we have to be hopeful that the world can get better and even if it's shit sometimes or there's like shitty things all around us we have to have hope where there's just no purpose in doing this and what gives you hope right now 
I think what I, it's really hard to say what does give me hope because sometimes I think like for example when the online safety bill got passed I was like that gives me hope that the next thing I want to work on will go through and succeed as well but um I think when I see small wins from other women so you know um I, one of my friends Georgia Harrison when she got her win in her case that gives me hope that you know maybe the legal system it's going to be a long way for it to change but like you know there are small changes happening here and there and women are starting to be listened to and I think that when I look at I have to look at history to see how far we've come to give me hope like I know back then that they were probably thinking like oh it's you know we're never going to get what we want and even if it doesn't come in their lifetime it might come in their child or their grandchild's lifetime so I think I just think about history and like how it could go that's what gives you hope maybe it's a bit naive on my part but you know I'm a very much fake it to you make it kind of person I think that's the only thing that I've really got at this current moment in time I think there's also something I always think about like suffragettes probably never imagined the fact that we would take the right to vote to be like a granted almost for all women right and that we would have women in the highest offices um and that wasn't that long ago that was within the last century basically almost and it's if that much can change in a hundred years, like imagine what the future could hold, even if things feel really, really bleak right now. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that I like, I know there's a lot of young women that say like, well, I don't vote because I don't think politics is for me. And it's like, but somebody sacrificed their life. So you could. So I think even if you don't think it's for you, it impacts everything you do from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to sleep. So maybe try and educate yourself on it. And even if you show up to an election, even spoiling, spoiling your ballot paper is you showing up and they will people will only take listen uh, take notice of people that do show up yeah it's i i this is my own soapbox i get really irritated when people either talk about the news or politics as if they're like a distant thing where the news is what's happening all around us right it just might be what's happening to our neighbor and not to us that day and politics is how we get to live so it impacts all of us and if we think it doesn't impact us that just means that we have a lot of privilege and are protected in this moment by the laws that exist in this moment and the government that exists in this moment and that could change but that's my soapbox no no i i fully agree with you and that's why like i think it's so important to have but when i was growing up i didn't have young women that were into politics to be like this is why it's important to us and you don't really get political education in school and i do think that there's some conspiracy theory behind that as to why they don't want to educate young people but I think that that's why people like us are so important because then they're now being awoken to things that are happening to them and where they they do have a choice or an opportunity to help control what happens to them. Yeah. It's and it's interesting. I imagine I'm I'm curious actually if the the bigger perspective is how you get through it where like politics as well as a space that is very homogenous, right? Like mostly middle class, middle-aged, white cishet white men in those rooms who have like come from the same types of schools and universities and all know each other and go out drinking together and like exist in the same bubble basically and maybe you are in that bubble I don't know but it doesn't seem like you are (laughs) and it's like there's one part of it is being taken seriously and the other part of it is like just getting into those rooms and like elbowing your way in and from the outside you seem to do it with such like grace and such not even fearlessness but just like I belong here and so what and I'm curious about just like how you how you're doing that, right? Like what you're thinking about, how you how you get taken seriously by these people who are probably just turning to you and you're like, oh, you're a young woman of color. I'm just going to ignore you because that's how I operate. And obviously they should be t- listening to you, but how do you navigate that? 
Um, I think I make it look effortless. It's really not. I think that there are so many times where people... Do you know what's actually as well? It's sometimes women have tried to push me out as well. Mm. And I mean, I don't look like the stereotypical people that belong in those places. And I don't think I ever will. Touch wood. No offence to them. I mean, or the faces <laughs> change entirely and yeah. everyone's like you in there. Um, but I think, you know, there have been times where people have tried to push me out or make me feel like my opinion was invalid or, you know, I'm just a silly little girl and I don't have anything worth contributing. So there have been times where I've cried and I've thought about quitting. And I'd be lying if sometimes when I wake up in the morning, even now, that I'm like, wouldn't my life just be so much easier if I took a complete, the more traditional route of people that have done what I've done? It's really hard. I think I've had to just kind of take it. And I think that, I've just become louder because of it. It sounds really weird, like, I don't really know how to explain it. I think I'm one of those people that's very good. If you don't hear me the first time, I'll keep going until you do hear me. And I think actually calling people out, because they're very used to not being called out because they're from the same spaces. So they think what they're doing is perfectly normal and perfectly fine. And I think it's until other people around them, their their biggest fear is being embarrassed. So if that's the tactic that I'm going to have to use, then I will. And also, like, I worked hard to get there. I'm not going to have someone push me out because they don't like how I look. Yeah. Um, and, you know, people in those offices are there to serve the people outside those offices. And if they don't look like the people outside the offices, then they're not being able to do their job correctly. It's also interesting. There's something you said there, which I picked up on. And I wanted to know where you were like, you know, I could have taken the traditional route to get there. And it's like... Is there a traditional route for someone like you or me even? There isn't, right? That's no. part of it. We're making the route. You're making the route. Uh, I mean, it's really nice for you to say that. I think that maybe, I mean, the tra- traditional route actually isn't given to people that look like us. Yeah. And I think that it's probably really naive to me th- for me to think that, yeah, I could have taken the traditional route because it would have been very short-lived. Or it would have been like you being in the civil service until you retired, right? That's that's a traditional route you're yeah. quoting you. But even there, you said that you were already the exception which is like the hard part right like it's almost like every room you enter you will be the exception because there haven't been people like us in those rooms before it's really bizarre that when i was there that it was like it felt like a chore but now i get invited to be in those spaces mm-hmm. and i think it's where I, I where i was like i'm going to keep banging on the door to you hear me and that now that i'm being invited into those spaces i'm trying to bring other people with me and i think that's something that's really important as well about activism it's not about getting yourself somewhere and pulling the ladder up and i've seen so many people in really senior offices in these spaces that are doing exactly that um so when i go to those spaces now i, I always consider what people can i bring with me mm. what people can i talk about when i'm in those spaces because it's that it would be pointless if i'm doing this for me it should be a collective responsibility there's almost like a scarcity mindset there right like there's only room for one of us and so people tend to at least in my experience like people will women women of color even will like enter the room and then be like okay well i'm, I'm the one here and there, there won't be space for more of us so i'll just take this and pull the ladder up and it's so hard to break that yeah i think because of the friends i've grown up with a lot of the time some of us wouldn't have got opportunities if one of us didn't bang the drum for somebody else in that room because realistically, not every not every opportunity you get is going to fit you. Yeah. So you there there is enough space for all of us, and I think the sooner people realize that, the better. But there is no harm in helping your sisters because they'll eventually help you. 
Yeah. So I know it's a really negative way to think about it, like this person will eventually help me, but it's true. We're not supposed to do it alone, right? And there's this idea that like the self-made man, it's also never the self-made woman, it's a self-made yeah. man, right? And that's, that's just bullshit. It, you also can't fight misogyny and racism if you're going to be part of it yourself. Yeah. That's how I view it anyway. And I'm curious about what rooms you're trying to get into now, or what doors you're trying to open, whether for yourself or for your sisters around you. I think that I'm still, I still really want to be part of mainstream politics. Like I still really want to be an MP. I think that a lot of the time people don't, you know, there's cis-hair white men in those spaces. And I don't think they're doing a good enough job representing people like me. So I'm just, I've openly said it a million times, I'm going to come for their job. And in many times, I will be the first woman to represent. Like if, for example, if I won, I don't think it'll happen in the next election, but the election after, if I won my constituency, I'd be the first woman, the first person of color, the first like not heterosexual person to also like win, a, yeah. win that seat. So I'd be the first. Of, and I think it's, you just don't be afraid to be the first person. Somebody has to be. And then when the first person, when the first person's done that, then everyone else will follow. So I think that I still want to be part of mainstream politics, just not in the civil service. That makes sense. Do you do you ever feel the burden of representation as a first? Because it's it's double-edged, right? Like, of, of course, it's good. You want to keep the door open. But also, when you're the only, if you're the first, you're often the only. And if you're the only, it's it's a sense of like, well, I, I can't fuck this up because it'll close the door for everyone else behind me, which is not true, but at least yeah. I feel that often. And then the second part of it is, if I'm the first or the only, I have to make sure everyone's voice is heard, but I'm just one person and I can only like hold so much space, right? And am I letting the whatever percentage of people who don't have a, a voice or they, everyone has a voice, but don't have like access to the space, am I letting them down? Yeah, I think that it's hard when you're the first and the only because you don't have anyone to ask for advice that's been in that situation. So I think that's one of the things I find the hardest. And I'm so open about potentially making mistakes. Like I am human, but as long as I learn from those mistakes, I think that that's the only thing that matters. I think it's when you make mistakes consistently and don't take anything from them that you're not doing anything. You're closing the, closing the door for your sisters behind you. So I think that it's important to think that way. And also when you are the first and only, people know that it's not gonna be easy for you or you'd like to think that people not, are going to know it's not going to be yeah. easy for you. So I think, not that I want them to give me leeway or be lenient, but I think that it's it should be talked about that it's going to be hard, 10 times harder for me than 10 times harder for someone who may look like my current MP. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things of, I think Mandy was someone who said this actually, like we don't expect like cishet white men to represent all men, right? Yeah. Or all white men. And it's fascinating when you don't fit that, you are expected to represent everyone else because everyone else doesn't generally have a seat at the table in the room. Yeah, and actually I'd never even considered that. But yeah, there's not a lot of like Asian male representation either. So part of me sometimes does feel like, like I have to do something for my brother as well as yeah. I have to do something for my like sisters. How do you, like, do you have people you've turned to in being the first who maybe aren't in the same rooms as you, who you turn to for advice? Like, how do you navigate that? Are you talking to people or are you just, like, working through it and making mistakes in public and hoping that we all treat you with generosity and kindness? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's actually a mixture of the two. I think that one thing that I think has really made me feel bold in going into these spaces is that 
all of the people around me that work with me on like, you know, my management, my publicist, they're all women. Mm. They're all young women. So they've also had to like publicly make those mistakes to get to where they are. And I think there's a good amount of relatability. And also you can be very honest and open and have those conversations. Nobody's hiding from each other about what we can and cannot deliver. It's very upfront. And I think we there's a mutual respect there. So I think that they're the types of people that I go to. And I think that's one of the reasons why I've been so bold in going forward. So I think, you know, and, you know, they don't understand politics. They've been very open about yeah. not understanding politics. So I don't get advice about the subject matter. Course, but yeah. yeah, I think that it's like, no, that, no, you are doing the right thing. Like you may make mistakes, but this is how I dealt with it. So even if it's not somebody that's doing exactly what you want to do, I think it's really important to have a really good network. And I hated networking when I was younger. It was the worst thing in the world, but actually... I've taken so much from it and there are so many women now that are making spaces and groups for you to be able to network in either areas that you're interested in or like if you're just looking for a friend or a new hobby so I think you just have to be brave enough to take that first step but also remember that if you don't take that first step you'll also cut yourself off to like a potential future that you have yeah it's it's interesting that you talk about making mistakes because it's such a like we're, we're expected to be perfect, right? Or like that's that's at least what we're fed, especially if you're in the public eye in any way, is you leave your humanity at the door and you put on a, a mask. And I imagine part of it is your journey into the public eye where it was edited and produced, but your humanity was like front and center as well, in a way, um, where you have like taken up that space and been very honest, very vulnerable and very human always. And it's it's just fascinating to me because very often we're told like don't fail don't make mistakes and I'm curious about has that been a journey for you or was that something you were raised with where like it's okay to make mistakes it's okay to it's okay to struggle or stumble like Um, you can get back up yeah it's not a it's not a a criticism of my parents Mm -hmm. but I think because they were brought up with the you can't make mistakes they brought me up with the you can't make mistakes rule as well and I think maybe that's why my dad was so scared for me to take this route because you know it's it's easy and it's safe to get up go to school go get a degree go do a nine-to-five work until I retire have children get married like it's safe and there's nothing wrong with wanting to do that if you want to do that but I think that you know my personality type doesn't necessarily work with that safe route that he took and it's okay for him but I think that's why he was so scared because I can get I get attacked even by own family members people that are related to me so I think that he it was them trying to protect me as opposed to like discourage me and I think everything like the whole person I am now is just because I've learned like I've learned to be who I am by making those mistakes if I was perfect I don't think I'd be half the person I am now um and like when young women message me all the time being like oh I'm so scared to do this like I'm scared to outgrow my friends I'm scared to leave a relationship or I'm scared to like take a subject or travel but if I didn't if I was also too scared then you know I wouldn't be the person that they say they look up to Mm. so and at that moment in time like my biggest advice to myself is at that moment in time you want what you decide and if in the future it's wrong okay it's it's fine but at that moment in time there was a logical reason and an emotional and gut reason why you decided to make that decision so trust yourself to make the right decision at that moment in time have you always been a risk taker i don't know i don't I, do you know what so comfortable with <laughs> <laughs> I, I think maybe because i do it so often that i don't consider mm-hmm. it being risky i think maybe i'm more of a like 
ask for forgiveness and ask for permission type of person. Same way. Maybe that's just my personality. And I think that now my parents, like I was not a troubled teenager, but considered like one that was just, would always talk back, always opinionated. And I think actually my teachers really didn't like it either. But I think now that people look at me and say like, yeah, it's been channeled in the right way and it makes sense because I've now made those avenues for myself. But I think that I don't I don't consider myself a risk taker, but... It sounds like you just questioned things a lot and now your job is to question things and so you made it work for you. Yeah, and I think actually one of the things that I would say to people in school when I do careers talks is that, you know school teaches you how to pass an exam it doesn't teach you how to to deal with life and there were so many skills that I had Mm. that were not being channeled in the right way like I really wanted to be a barrister and being argumentative or opinionated or like asking questions about every single piece of information that's in front of you are our natural skills to be a barrister but they were discouraged instead of encouraged Mm. so yeah I always say to people like take those like teachers are great and like we should respect them but I think take those opinions quite lightly because I did because it could have completely discouraged me from what I do now it's also just like the stereotypes right of like you should fit into a certain type of box to be successful and you're making a new box so obviously the the type of the type of person that should like fit the the idea of success that is very prescribed by society isn't the kind of person who's going to build the kind of life and career you're building Yeah, and I think actually most of the people I know in my personal life that didn't necessarily fit what what was expected of them or always went against society were what you would deem as successful. I I think if you speak to most, like, air quote, successful people, then they were always... Never the never the like kid that was the like most popular with teachers in school or, like, argued with their parents or, like, you know, just loads of little things. I hated school because I hated school. Um... And I think it's just a similar, I've noticed it's a similar thing that everybody like that has when they're in that room. It took me a long time to recognize that it wasn't just like me struggling. It was just the system wasn't built for me. And most systems aren't built for those of us who are like trying to do something different or just like like to question things even. Yeah, it's, um, I feel like I'm I feel like a big Pinterest board, but it's like judging fish by climbing trees. Mm. Like everyone's, everyone is good at something. Yeah and maybe passing exams might not be the thing that you're good at, but like don't dumb down the skills or tone down the skills that you've got or what you want to pursue because you can't pass an exam. Yeah, I love that. Um, Which leads me to my last question, which is an advice-y type of question um, where this is called Little Revolutions with the idea being that the, the problems that surround us are systemic and so much bigger than any one of us, but we all have agency, we all have power and we can... And most change happens like in the daily, in the doing, right? It, it happens in changing laws, but it also happens in how we live. Um, and if there's someone listening to this, like the younger Sharon listening to this, the younger Misuma listening to this, and they're like, I, I don't know where to start, but I want to take up space. I want to carve out my own path. I feel like I have something to say. What's, what are some little revolutions, like tiny things they can do, right? This is a starting point. I think that... This is actually something I learned from a guest that was on my podcast. And it's like, speak to yourself how you would speak to a friend. I think that's the first thing. I think people are so worried about what they can do around them as opposed to what they can do for themselves. You can't pour from an empty cup. So always speak to yourself like you would speak to someone you love. And maybe this is something I'm even learning to do now, like learn to take your own advice. If you can serve yourself, you can learn to serve other people. But you do have to start with your own internal being and well-being first. Is there any piece of advice that you're like trying to take that you yourself that you give others right now? 
Oh, I think it's more like relationshipy stuff, you know. I think trying to I think being a woman like myself is really hard when it comes to dating. Like I'm bisexual, so I date heterosexual men and yeah. women and I think sometimes heterosexual men can be really intimidated by the type of person I am because I have very clear boundaries. Yeah. And if you cross that boundary, you are gone. Yeah. And I think that I'm very clear to my friends that are like, you know, you need you need to respect your boundaries, you need yeah. to love yourself if they're not right for you. But sometimes I find it hard to do that. So, you know, it might look like I've got everything under control, but actually like the romantic aspect of my life is just utter chaos. So I kind of like put that in the cupboard under the stairs and hope that that will sort itself out. That's the working on it cupboard, yeah. right? Yeah. I feel like it's also just, it's at least in my experience, it's hard to date as a successful woman, right? Like people are just intimidated. Yeah, and I think that there is, especially with um, the heterosexual men that maybe I've come across, maybe it's something, maybe I'm not looking in the right circles or spaces. It's not but, you, Sharon. Okay, that's fine. It's but, the system, <laughs> the patriarchy. But, but like, they always, it's always like that. They just, they want the power. I'm okay with the power imbalance, but they always want it to be like them on top. Yeah. And I don't, I'm one of those people that I view relationships as if, as if like both of you make up a hundred yeah. and then on certain days, if only if you've got 20 or 30, the other person has to make it up and it goes the other way around as opposed yeah. to like me constantly having to do the unpaid unseen labor yeah. Yeah. to like make a relationship. And maybe I would say peace is priceless and I live on my own with my dogs. So when I go home, that pasta dish from last night is my pasta dish and nobody else's. So I can't blame anyone else yeah. for it. Yeah. But yeah, like I always say, speak to yourself like mm. you would speak to someone you love. That's lovely. Is there anything I should have asked you that I didn't? No, I think you pretty much covered everything, actually. Great. I've talked a lot, so... <laughs> Thank you for being here. No, it's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you, Sharon, for this wonderful conversation. To learn more about Sharon and her work, check out our show notes. And thank you for listening to Little Revolutions, a podcast brought to you by Frida. I'm Masuma Ahuja, your host and head of content here at Frida. This episode was produced by Claire Richardson and Marta Mazur and edited by Holly Galloway.